Turn your Bibles now, if you would, please, to Joshua chapter 9. It's been a few weeks since we've had a chance to study in the book of Joshua. And we're going to have some interruptions for the next few weeks as we go through here, some special speakers that we have. And so uh, we won't get consistently back into Joshua until in January. But tonight we're looking at Joshua chapter 9. And the title of my sermon this evening is, Ask Me No Questions and I'll Tell You No Lies. And that is a saying that was attributed to Oliver Goldsmith, who was a playwright in the 18th century. And actually, what he said was, if you don't ask me questions, I can't give you an untrue answer. A few months ago, we were studying in the book of Ephesians on Wednesday night. And we were studying in chapter 4, where Paul says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. And in that sermon, I was describing how that lies have become such a common part of our society today. Sometimes it's much more convenient for us to tell a lie than it is to tell the truth. And sometimes we even expect people to lie about us, uh, to us about certain things, because if they told the truth, that would make the teller uncomfortable, and also the people who hear it would be uncomfortable. And so it's common for us just to, it seems, to tell lies and to expect to tell lies. But as convenient as that might sometimes be, that's not a way to build relationships. And any time that you build a relationship on an untruth, or if you just want to call it a lie, when you build a relationship on a lie, it's bound to fail. It always causes problems. Well, the Bible is very clear to us where lies came from. We all know that lies came from the devil. The Bible calls the devil the father of lies. He, he started his career as a liar. I think the first thing that he did was he lied to himself when he, when he thought that he could be like God. But then also we know that he lied to man, and through that lie, the whole human race fell. And the devil hasn't stopped lying to us since that time. Well, in this story that we have in the book of Joshua tonight, there is a very carefully crafted lie that's told. And the devil is so good at deceiving people that we can read this lie that's told in the Bible... And we can almost find ourselves defending the people who told the lie. And we think, well, this really seems to be a reasonable thing to do. But we're going to talk about this this evening. And and, uh, uh, I hope we won't end up justifying the deceit of these people that we're going to talk about. So let's stand, if you would, please, for the reading of God's Word. We're looking at Joshua chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 down through verse 11. And it came to pass when all the kings which were on the side of Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in the coast of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. Now here is a league that's being formed between the nations of Canaan When Joshua conquers Jericho, Israel conquers Ai, and now these people in Canaan say, we're in trouble. And so they get all of the different peoples that are in the land of Canaan together, and they're going to fight against Joshua and Israel. Verse number three, and when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work wilily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, and old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, 
We be come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye? And from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sion, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants. Therefore now make ye a league with us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word tonight. And Lord, we pray that you might show us something from your word. Help us to learn something uh, that you would have us to know and that would help us to serve you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you read this story, you almost have to feel sorry for these Gibeonites. These were people that were unlike their neighbors that were in Canaan. And rather than to resist the invasion of Israel, they decided that resistance to Israel and to their God was futile. After they heard about all the different exploits of Israel and Joshua, what they'd done as they were traveling uh, to the promised land, how that God had led them out of Egypt and how they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, what they'd done as they defeated the Amorite kings and, and then seeing Israel come across the Jordan River and then conquer the cities of Jericho and Ai, these people of, Gi- of Gibeon were convinced that any resistance against Israel and their God would simply be a futile attempt. They would be killed anyway. And so they reasoned that making a league with all of their neighbors, like the rest of these people in Canaan were doing, that coming to fight against Joshua and Israel wouldn't work. And so what they decided to do was take another route, and they would make peace with Joshua and with Israel. And the method that they used was actually a a pretty clever method. But it really wasn't so clever that if Joshua and Israel had very carefully considered the situation, that they wouldn't have been able to see through this exactly what these people were up to. Well, I think that there are some lessons that we can learn from Joshua and these Gibeonites. The first thing I want to show you tonight is, and the first lesson that we learn, is that Satan is crafty in his methods. For the next few weeks, we're going to be studying about Satan on Wednesday night, and we're going to learn a lot about Satan's crafty methods. But this was a pretty well-conceived plan that these people tried. The Gibeonites knew a lot about Israel. They'd done their homework well. They had researched the whole thing. And they knew that Israel was not supposed to make any kind of a peace treaty with any person who lived in Canaan. If you look down in verse number 24 of chapter 9, it says, And they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing. So Israel's directive and this very clear command that came from God is that Israel was to destroy every person in the land of Canaan. They weren't to let any of their enemies live. There were to be no peace treaties made with anyone. They were to destroy them all. Now, if these Gibeonites thought that there was another way and there was another way out of this thing than what they would have done, they would have just thrown up the white flags. They would have surrendered their cities and let Israel take over. 
But peace was not possible. God said, you can't make a peace with these people. You have to destroy them all. And so the people of Gibeon decided, we've got to do something. We've got to try something else. And so they tried this deceptive method in order to trick Joshua and the children of Israel into making a peace agreement. Well, they were very clever about this. They did know Joshua cannot make peace with anyone in Canaan. And so they pretended when they came to Joshua, that they were a people who lived actually outside of Canaan. So what they did was they dressed up in old clothes. They put old saddles on their animals to ride on. They brought old wineskins. They took bread that was already moldy, stale and moldy. And they they told Joshua that we've come from a far off country. They made it look like they've been traveling a long distance in order to get to them. And so they said, we've come from a far off country. We know that you're about to conquer Canaan. And we want to make a peace treaty with you so that we can all live together in peace and harmony. Well, that was a pretty good trick. I mean, for unsuspecting people, not knowing what was going on. And Joshua is just a little bit too quick here to jump on this peace treaty and to accept what they say without further investigation. Well, that actually shows us something about Satan. I think first it shows us that his methods are diverse. Now, Satan is a very crafty being. And if one way that he works to attack us doesn't, doesn't pan out for him, he has a backup plan. And so he tries a different way. Now, sometimes what Satan does, he, he comes to us in an all-out frontal assault. I mean, he comes to us, the Bible says, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so he may come to us head on. He may try to frighten us. He may try to scare us. He, he tries to act tough towards us. And it's possible that he does put some Christians on the run and, and others because of that frontal assault. Maybe you've experienced something like that in your life. Uh, Satan may put somebody intimidating in front of you. And for some people, it can be a preacher. Sometimes Satan plants a preacher in front of people. And that preacher becomes so domineering that he frightens people. And he says, the judgment of God's going to come upon you if you don't do what I say. In many foreign countries, there's a lot of demonic influence where the devil is working very directly. You can talk with Joseph. I mean, he has experiences of, of uh, this kind of thing in India where the devil is working in that way. And so curses are put on people and, and, and people are told that bad, bad things and misfortune is going to befall you because of a curse that's been put on you. And that happens with people who aren't enlightened to the truth of the word and they don't understand that God can put a hedge of protection around his people. And so people can be controlled by all sorts of things that the devil does in a frontal assault. Well, I want to make it very clear to you up front that if you're a child of God, you don't have anything to fear from the devil. Now, listen to me, though, because you ought to fear him in this way. At least fear him in the sense that he's stronger than you, he's smarter than you, he's more capable than you. That is when you're in your own strength. And so if you ever decide that you're going to go up against the devil in your own strength, you have every reason to be afraid. But when you go in the strength of the Lord, there's no reason to fear anything the devil throws against you because God is our protector. So if you, com- if you rely completely on the power of God, then you don't have to worry about frontal assaults from Satan. But Satan does have diverse methods. So if that all-out frontal attack doesn't work, then he comes with a backdoor approach. He'll be more subtle with things and he'll be more enticing as he works. Now, I think that's the way mostly that Satan works in our country. You don't often see frontal attacks by Satan. 
uh, we, we don't have a whole lot of people around us that are practicing witchcraft. You're not likely to go out on the streets here in Rona Park or Santa Rosa and find somebody practicing voodoo out in the middle of the street. I mean, that doesn't happen here. And the reason it doesn't is because our country has been largely Christianized and people who even aren't Christians, they're really not very highly superstitious. And so the devil knows that he really can't work in that way. And so what he decides to do, he comes against us with the crafty, wily attack. He uses the same kind of strategy that he used on Eve. Now, Satan never would have had Eve entertain anything that he said. If he came against, if he came against her up to Eve and, and told her how bad that God was and tried to assault the God that she served, if he tried that, she, he, he would have had no luck at all with her. But instead, what he did was to try to change things oh so subtly. He made the fruit appear enticing to her. He promised that things would change if she would partake of that fruit. And she accepted the lie that the devil told. And Satan works among Christians in this country, I think, exactly in that way. You don't find Satan, for the most part, trying to stamp out Christianity. Really what he's trying to do is very subtly change what people believe about the Lord. He tries it in a tricky manner. And so what he does, he, he leaves just enough truth in all these different denominations and different beliefs that we have out there that people can call themselves Christians, but there's just enough truth left in it that the devil has his lie that's planted there, and what he tries to get people to do is to make a God of their own choosing or make God out to be exactly what they want God to be. And so the devil works in a very crafty way. Well, if you look at this uh, or think about the Gibeonites and and know what... uh, uh, they said to Israel and, and how they, they really, in a, in a sort of, in a way, quoted back to Israel the very things that God said to them. I mean, they were repeating God's words back. I mean, they knew exactly that Israel was not supposed to make this league. And if you think about it in that way, you can see how the devil can even take Scripture and use it against the people of God. I mean, if Satan would tempt Jesus and then quote Scripture to him, don't you think Satan will quote Scripture to you too? Well, certainly he does. And so he has people that pick up the very same Bible that we use and they distort it, they change things around, and they preach doctrines that are not in the Word of God by using the very same text that we use. But sometimes the devil doesn't work that way. Instead, he changes the text. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have all these different Bible versions that are out there today, all the modern Bible versions, because Satan has very subtly changed things, like what the Scripture says about the deity of Christ. He doctors up the plan of salvation. And he takes, has preachers uh, isolate Scriptures from the Bible and lift those things out and apply a meaning to Scripture that really isn't there. And one of the things that he does is he even works on our Baptist preachers. I mean, you take a look today and and see preachers who claim that they're doing expository preaching, but it's not uncommon at all to hear many preachers take an Old Testament passage, lift a few words or a verse out of the Old Testament completely out of its context and begin to build their sermons around that and to build their doctrine around it. Now, here's the problem with that. When you lift things out of context and you use, them, uh, use the, the words of God in that way, then you're not staying true to the text as it's written and you're not presenting the word of God as God intended for it to be given. And so you have many people that do that and what they end up with is inconsistent theology. 
That's why you have preachers today who don't preach on the doctrines of grace anymore because they're not concerned about how the Bible is so cohesive in its teaching that it runs all the way through the text. And so rather than to preach those things, they overlook them, they throw them out, and they lift the scriptures out to make a different meaning out of them. So the devil has different avenues of attack. He works slowly and methodically. He perverts the sound judgment even of preachers. And that's why in our many Baptist churches, you find our churches have abandoned such teachings as the doctrine of the church, as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. They've abandoned the perpetuity of the church. Now it's not uncommon at all to find Baptist people who believe that we are Protestants or believe that, and which actually means that we came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And so Baptists don't preach the truth of that any longer. They don't preach the truth about scriptural baptism and the necessity of that for church constitution. And so the devil has perverted these doctrines. What we find here is the Gibeonites came out against Joshua and Israel, not with their swords and not with spears and not with arrows, not with, with shields, but they came against Israel with deceit and with a lie. And Satan works the same way in our churches today. Satan is able to destroy the church from within. And the way that he does it, he does it without even firing a shot. All that he has to do is to pervert the word of God. So that's one of his methods. Well, also, Satan, his his methods are deceitful. What appears to be is not always as it is. So the old clothes and the tattered wineskins and the moldy bread, they gave the appearance of something that really wasn't what it was supposed to be. Now notice what they say in verse number 9. And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God. Now we notice there that they invoke the name of Jehovah God. That's what the Lord, word Lord there means in that context. It's Jehovah God. And so they said to them, We come in the name of Jehovah. Anybody here had somebody come to your house and say, I'm here in the name of Jehovah? Well, certainly you have. Just about everybody here has. They say, we've come in the name of Jehovah. Folks, a religious lie is the very worst lie that you can tell. There's an old joke, you know, that says, how do you tell when a politician is lying? His lips are moving. How do you tell, how do you tell when a Jehovah witness or a Mormon is lying? Same way, their lips are moving. They have the lies of the devil. Now, Peter talks about religious liars in 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, you may think about me tonight. You say, well, Pastor Smith, that's not very nice the way you're presenting this. You're not being very kind about this. I mean, these folks, they're just a little bit confused. They don't know what they're doing. So don't be too harsh on them. But what does the Bible say about this? Well, in 2 Peter 2 verse 1, Peter writes, But there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. If you have your Bibles there open, turn to the book of Jude, if you would. Uh, find Revelation, back up one, uh, one book to the book of Jude. Just one chapter here, but this is full of information, chock full of information. Let me give you just some select Verses of scripture that come out of the book of Jude about false teachers. Uh, Verse number four in Jude. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying 
the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 8, likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Verse number 10, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beast, in those things they corrupt themselves. Verses 14 and 15, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, that seems pretty harsh to me. The writers of the New Testament have no patience at all with people who pervert the word of God. And so what we have today going around is open deceit. People know what they're doing. Now, we might think they're just misguided, but they're not. They're not harmlessly misguided. They're emissaries of Satan. And religious liars are the very worst liars of all. And it doesn't make any difference if they come in the package of Jehovah Witnesses or of Mormons or of Roman Catholics or Methodists or Presbyterians or even in a Baptist package. A religious liar is the worst of all. And the reason that they are is because they traffic in men's souls. And the only way that you can recover someone from a religious lie is for God to change things and speak to that person's heart and to turn them around. So unless God miraculously intervenes... The devil will have his deceptions out there that will fool people right into the fires of hell. Never be ashamed to identify somebody who's of their father, the devil. Now let's go on here because there's a second lesson that we can learn from the ruse of the Gibeonites. Satan is crafty in his methods and also sinners corrupt with their influence. Warren Wiersbe has an interesting comment on how people like the Gibeonites infiltrate the church. And here's what he said. In my pastoral ministry, I've met people who have introduced themselves as seekers. The longer they talked, the more convinced I was they were sneakers, trying to get something out of me and the church. God was very specific for his reasons in telling Israel, don't make a league with the Canaanites. He said, kill all them all, kill all of them. And he had a very good reason for doing that. If they didn't do it, If they left Canaanites in the land, first thing that happens, intermarriage. Israel's people begin to intermarry with the heathens. Second thing that happens is they begin to worship their false gods. And God doesn't want us to do that. There's division of loyalty. And so God said, you've got to destroy these people. And later in Israel's history, those warnings proved to be true because they did all of those things. Their their loyalties were divided. They worshiped false gods. They intermarried with the heathens. And what happens is, when you try to make friends with the world and with people who aren't following the Lord, their influence would be felt on you more than your influence will be felt on them. And so God tells us to separate from that. Now, you just take a look today at what happened with the ecumenical movement and look at what that's done with the true church, and you can see what I'm talking about. Now, people wonder about this. Well, why are we so exclusive at Berean? Why is it that we don't join up with all the other denominations that we have in town? Why don't we get together with the evangelistic campaigns that go on? Why don't we get with the Methodists and and with the Presbyterians and, and everybody else that's in town? And why don't we even join up with some of the Baptists that are in town? Well, the reason that we don't is because anytime that you combine truth with error, you no longer have the truth. Truth always suffers. 
And so God says, don't join up with that. Stay away from it. Don't water down the truth because you won't end up with truth. Now, I want you to notice here a couple of things about the sincerity of these Gibeonites. Now, first, it all sounds real good here, but what are these people really up to? Well, notice two things about Gibeonites and also about sinners. The first one is they are not ignorant of God. Now, I've already shown you they were very much aware of Israel's God. They knew God's directive towards Israel. God said, kill Canaanites. They knew what happened in Egypt and and what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. They heard about the two Amorite kings, and they mentioned that. But do you notice something here that they very carefully leave out? They said, we came because of the name of the Lord your God and because of his fame. And we've heard about your fame. We've heard about what happened in Egypt. We heard about Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. We heard about these things. But what did they leave out? Well, we notice here there's no reference to the crossing of the Jordan River. There's no reference to the defeat of Jericho. And why don't they mention that? Well, they don't mention it because they're trying to keep up the pretense here. Those are events that just happened. And so if they'd come from a far country a long way off, they wouldn't have known about Israel crossing the Jordan River. They wouldn't have known about the destruction of Jericho. Those are recent and fresh events. And so to keep up the pretense here, they don't mention that. Now, John Gill points out that in verse number seven, the Gibeonites are called Hivites. And Hivites, that word actually means serpents. And Satan and these Gibeonites give serpents a bad name. So here they're saying, we were willing to proselyte to Judaism. We want to worship your God. They don't have the intention of doing either. And it appears that they're willing to make a long journey. They're willing to uh, chance the perils of a long journey. They're willing to even take a chance that Joshua just might kill them anyway when they came. But they said, we're doing this because we want to seek out the one true God. And that was nothing but a bunch of malarkey. They weren't ignorant of God. And secondly, they weren't interested in God. They didn't care really about the God of Israel. Now, the interest that they really have is to save their hides. The rest of Wearsby's comment about those sneakers instead of seekers, it goes like this. They would make their profession of faith and then start telling me their sad tale of woe, hoping to break my heart and then pick my pocket. You know, I've seen a lot of that. I've seen people that that come into church, you know, and you'd be amazed at the numbers of people that stop by the church, especially during the holiday season. And they've got all kinds of tales of woes about how they've served the Lord and they've fallen on hard times. They want a handout, most of them. But if you try to put a stipulation on it, if you speak to them, you say, well, you know, I'd really like to talk to you about the Lord. And, and I really want to, to talk to you about how you need to get involved in church and come to church and be a part of the Lord's body. You know what happens when you do that? Many times they'll curse you on the way out. I've had that happen a lot of times. I had a lady who was in my office the other day. She told me that she was a Christian. She gave me this long, sad story about all the things that had befallen her. And so I tried to talk to her about the Lord. And I told her that if she was a Christian, that what she really needed to do was start serving the Lord as a Christian should. And that probably some of the troubles that came upon her were self-imposed. And you know what she did? She got angry. She cursed at me and she stomped out of the church. Now, you know, when some people see that word church out there on the sign, what they see is easy target. That's what they're looking at. There's a place that I can go and get some money. 
And so they come into the church, and what they want to do, they want to define Christianity for you. And they're going to tell you how Christians ought to act. And so if you start to deal with spiritual matters, then their immediate response is almost this. You are unchristian. If you try to talk to them about spiritual things, they'll tell you you are unchristian because you don't want to help them in some other way. Well, that's the way that Satan works, and that's the way that sinners can corrupt. Now, I do have kind of an interesting tale because I, I did have a man who stopped by the church a few weeks ago. He was a homeless man, and uh, he began to tell me his story. And I really did feel like he was telling me the truth. I mean, I thought that uh, he was a man who was saved by his testimony. I mean, just, just by listening to him and hearing the kind of language that he used, that he sounded very much like a saved man. And so I thought, well, he's fallen on some hard times, and so uh, I'm going to try to help this man out. So he, he told me that what he really wanted, he said, I, I don't want very much. He said, I just need a little bit of money. I want to get a room at Motel 6 so I can uh, clean myself up a little bit. And I've got a person coming to pick me up tomorrow, he said, and they're going to help me to find a job. I've got a job that's promised. Well, usually when people come to the church, I mean, I, I have to tell them this, and it's the absolute truth. We don't keep any money on the premises. So it's not like I can just go to the safe and take a bunch of money out and hand it over to somebody. I, I wouldn't do that anyway. But uh, so usually the only money that we have in the church is what might I have on me personally. And if you know me, I don't carry very much money. I'm smarter than that. I've had kids, so I don't carry very much money around with me. But on this particular day, I had $25 to my name. Well, this man had a little bit of money himself that I don't know where he got it, but he collected it somewhere. And so he said, well, if you can give me that $25, then that will be enough to get the room. Well, so I did it. I gave him the $25, all that I had at that moment. And so he took it and left. And uh, I assumed that he went to get his room at Motel 6. But a very interesting thing happened. Two days later, I received a check in the mail that I wasn't expecting for $240. I didn't know... Where I had no idea that I was going to receive that. And what I learned from that experience is maybe the Lord gave me somebody that I was supposed to help. And that's why he impressed me with it. And I learned this, that when you give, when you tithe, when you help people, you simply cannot outgive God. I wasn't expecting anything, but God brought me a blessing because of that. Well, that's way off my point tonight, and that's not what I really want to talk about this evening. But my point is that when you join up with the wrong people, when you join with the wrong crowd, it will always hurt you, and rarely does it help them. But having said all of that, and I certainly don't want to back up on anything that I've said here, these these, uh, Gibeonites and the league that they wanted to make with Israel, it was a bad idea. God said, I don't want you to do things like this, and they told a lie But there's something else that comes out of this story. Now, the third thing I want you to notice is that salvation is complete in deliverance. Satan is crafty in his methods and sinners corrupt with their influence. But salvation is complete in deliverance. What happens here is that Joshua and Israel did enter into this agreement with the Gibeonites. Now, it was very hasty. And instead of Joshua and Israel relying on the Lord to give them the answer to this, they uh, just used their common sense, and so they entered into this. And if they'd taken just a little bit more time to consider what's actually going on here, they would have discovered just how suspicious the whole thing was. They would have realized that when somebody comes from a far-off country, and they're coming as ambassadors to see you, well, they're going to make 
proper provisions for the long journey that they have to make. I mean, they're going to make sure that they don't arrive in tattered clothes. Most likely, they're going to clean themselves up and also bring gifts to give you. I mean, that was the custom at the time. I mean, when you traveled to another country and you were going to meet with dignitaries, you brought them a gift. But the Gibeonites didn't do any of that. They didn't have any of those of that. So what they did, though, is they get their foot in the door by appealing to Joshua and Israel's pride. We heard how great you are. We heard what you did. And so Israel and Joshua was taken in by this. So Joshua makes a league with them. But later, he finds out that they're telling him a lie. This is in verses 15 and 16. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they had made a league with them that they heard that they were their neighbors and dwelt among them. So Joshua finds out these are actually Canaanites. And when Joshua found that out, the temptation was to kill them right there on the spot. I mean, I think there's an indication here that that's exactly what the people of Israel wanted to do. Leaving the Gibeonites alive meant that they wouldn't be able to plunder their cities. It meant that they wouldn't have the spoils there, and neither would they be able to possess the Gibeonites' land. And so their first thing they they want to do is to kill the Gibeonites. But Joshua decided not to do that. Now, it appears like the wrong thing to do. Maybe we think they should have killed them. They, they told a lie and they should have done exactly what they were supposed to do. Letting them live means that there's now Canaanites among them. And if there's Canaanites there, that means sometime later there'll be a compromise and that's going to lead to problems. And that was exactly my last point, wasn't it? Sinners corrupt with their influence. So should they have killed the Gibeonites? Well, that's not the case and that's not what God wanted them to do because here is a, is a situation where God graciously intervened and when he did, he gave us a picture of salvation. How is that? Well, first, the undeserving are given life. See, these Gibeonites didn't deserve to be spared. They're liars. They came to Joshua in deceit. I mean, we're talking about people who are as wicked as all the rest of the Canaanites. These are people who worship false gods. No doubt they're involved in in all the things that Canaanites did, human sacrifices and all of that. But here they are extended grace and mercy by Joshua and Joshua doesn't kill them. Well, hasn't God done exactly the same thing with us? We are undeserving. And did you know the Bible says that we are liars? In Psalm 58, verses 3 and 4, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. Hivites, serpents. And we are exactly the same way. We do not deserve the mercy and grace of God, but God gives it to us anyway. Now, there's a very remarkable thing about the, about the history of the Gibeonites. Joshua said that if you're going to stay alive, if we're going to permit you to stay alive, you must become our servants. And Joshua told them, you have to become servants in a particular place. And what he did was he made them servants that worked around the tabernacle. And through the history of the Gibeonites, they worked at both the tabernacle and around the temple area. Now, verse 23 of our text says, Now, therefore, ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen, and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And so throughout all of Israel's history, 
The Gibeonites lived among them, and they worked there around the temple. Do you know what that did for the Gibeonites? It put them in close proximity to the worship of the one true God. And so God gave them an advantage here. He gave them the advantage of working around the temple area. And so now they can learn about this true God. And did you know that during all the history of Israel, there is no evidence that the Gibeonites ever defected to any of Israel's enemies? They always remained true. And they prospered because of it. The Bible says that both David and Solomon sacrificed at Gibeon. When Israel, many hundreds of years later, was deported into Babylon, the people who came back with Zerubbabel, among them were Gibeonites. It was also Gibeonites that helped Nehemiah rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, do you see how gracious that God was to these people? The Gibeonites stayed around the altars of Jehovah. And although there were many Israelites who forsook the worship of the one true God, I mean, we see it in the time of Elijah, in the time of Elisha, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. I mean, all these prophets that talk about Israel needing to turn back to God. But you know who never defected from the one true God? Well, amazingly, it's Gibeonites. They never left the worship of God. Well, this never would have happened because they were undeserving. They should have been killed. But Joshua honored his promise. And God honors his promise as well. Well, there's one more picture about salvation in the story. And that is that God's law is honored. Now, Joshua honored this league with Gibeon because there was a higher law that was in effect. And that law says that God's people don't lie. Now, the Gibeonites could lie, but God's people don't lie. And so Joshua entered into the pact. He entered into the league with the Gibeonites and he allowed them to live. And he says, we're not going to harm you. Now, an interesting thing happens that a few hundred years later, that King Saul broke this original agreement that uh, Joshua made with the Gibeonites, and he killed some of the Gibeonites. You know what happened? God sided with the Gibeonites against Israel. And so God caused a famine to come for three years upon Israel because Saul killed some of these Gibeonites. You know what that teaches us? God always honors his law. How does that compare to salvation? Well, the very reason that Christ came to die is because of God's law. God's law says that all sin has to be punished. God doesn't forgive any sins without satisfaction to his law. You know, many people think that mercy trumps justice, but it doesn't work that way in God's economy. God never gives mercy at the expense of justice. And it's only because of God's justice that we've been given mercy. And so God sent his son into the world to die for us. And that purpose was to satisfy God's justice. And so Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and he paid the penalty of sin for us. And he fulfilled all of God's law that was against us. And so we're forgiven only for one reason. And it's on the basis of a sacrifice made to justice. Now, because of that, Because of Christ, the scripture says, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And so here you have this covenant that's made between Joshua and Gibeon. And it could have turned out disastrously in more ways than one. It was bad enough that Joshua entered into the league. But if Joshua had decided to go against his word, and if he broke his promise, if he broke the covenant then he would have stopped Israel's progress right there in the very beginning as they were about to take Canaan. Now, God was very gracious towards Israel. He forgave them of the indiscretion, and he also turned around and made Gibeon an asset to Israel. 
And that just shows how God honors his promises. Now, one final point of the message tonight, and that is to believe, we must believe God's warnings and claim his mercy. In verse 25, the Gibeonites said to Joshua, And now, behold, we are in thine hand, as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us, do. So here are the Gibeonites. They've been exposed. They've been caught. Everybody knows they've told a lie. Now all that they can do is just ask for mercy. Well, something they'd heard about Joshua. Joshua was a man of integrity. And so they weren't afraid to trust their lives to what Joshua said. Here is a man of integrity. He's made a promise. And so we trust you, they said, to do the right thing. You will do the right thing. And you know that God tells us to do the exact same thing. We understand that there is a warning about hell and we heed the warnings that God gives. But at the very same time, we turn to Jesus Christ and we trust the promise that he will forgive if we just come to him. There's never any fear to come to Jesus. He always forgives when we come to him. And so when you come to understand who God is, you'll also understand that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. And whatever is good and whatever is pleasing in God's sight, that's exactly what he will do. And just thank God for this, that God in his mercy and his grace decided to extend mercy and grace to those of us who are undeserving sinners. Philippians 2 verse 13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. All we need to do is simply trust God that God will always do right with this. We just come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word we've read tonight and for the opportunity to preach your word. Lord, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts through this message. Help us to understand, Lord, how you want us to walk with you and trust you. And Lord, may we never succumb to the wiles of the devil. Help us not to be fearful of him, but to trust only in you. And then, Lord, also that we might be content to stay with God's people, fellowship with God's people, make our friends among God's people. And we know, Lord, our lives will be blessed through that. Thank you, Lord, for each one who's come tonight. Blessing this invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.